This is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. The greatest site of conflict today in democracies, the locus of use and abuse, idolatry and hatred, veneration and violence, the site both of their greatest hope and their deepest degeneration seems to be their founding documents, the constitution. And it is this word, this document, but above all, this idea, because constitutions are an idea and bearers of ideas, that we unpack today in Mutant, a dictionary of democracy. Welcome back to Mutant and to two words whose gravity informs our political present and our political future, constitutions and cruelty. I want to begin, Eshwari, by posing a question so basic it might sound almost naive. What really is a constitution? I I think that's a very fundamental question uh, to ask and it is also a very timely question to ask because so much of our current conflict is shaped by uh, contesting, conflicting, and sometimes warring ideas about how to remain faithful to the constitutional ideal. And so we begin first by asking what is it that we are being asked to remain faithful to? And perhaps um, a fundamental and, and, and even clarifying thread already running through your formulation is simply this, that the contemporary crisis of democracy must be viewed as part of a broader history of reading and not reading the Constitution. In other words, the focus should actually not be on the static event of the writing of this document but of its traversal and its journey through time, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the imputation of uh, certain intents to its authors, the the founders of certain constitutional democracies, uh, by those future generations who have read it, who have read constitutions of their countries um, since its writing, since the time that these constitutions Uh, were written. Now, note the shift of emphasis we we subtly make here. A constitution becomes truly revolutionary, and we were saying in our previous episode that Ambedkar is a constitutionalist only because he is a revolutionary. So let's keep that idea uh, at the front and center of this problematic and, and simply say that a constitution becomes truly revolutionary as a heart of our democratic commitment, not when its uh, work is done uh, with the declaration crafted by its author um, or many authors, and not when um, the republic that it promises is simply founded. Instead, the constitution becomes revolutionary when it makes a radical beginning towards something new that did not exist before it. That is to say, the writing of the constitution is revolutionary only insofar as it dares to imagine a future 
for which there is no precedent. Right? This is why we were saying that Ambedkar is a fraught architect, always torn by the idea that he's seen to be, or perhaps even wrongly appropriated as a founder, as a constitutional architect. Because in a society that continues to linger in its violent, and we will say cruel past, what does it mean to be an architect of a constitution that tries to begin something new, but as he reminds us prophetically, falters? A constitution's work is therefore done not when it's written, Ambedkar argues, and we shall follow in the wake of Ambedkar's claim, but because of a ceaseless beginning at its heart, a ceaseless beginning. As James Baldwin says, the only thing we can abdicate is responsibility, right? Nobody can take it away from us. To answer your question, the constitution is this responsibility to beginning again and again. And it is in that sense, let's already footnote something that we will do in Mutant, is to place Ambedkar and James Baldwin in a, sh in a constellation of thinkers of our radical democratic future. Now, that already means that rather than the art and the act of writing a constitution, what is now fundamental to our democratic commitment and survival itself is a constant act of reading and rereading this document and thus of interpreting it. There are, of course, as we now know, we were speaking about the Supreme Court um, in our earlier episode. Uh, these are justices who considered themselves to be conservative originalists, right? Whom we might call uh, traditionalists in a more colloquial language. These are judicial conservatives and even neoconservatives who see the Constitution as a repository of pure immutable wisdom that the American or French or Indian founders bestowed upon future generations, a certain truth, and which must be strictly adhered to in the letter and spirit of a constitutional and judicial orthodoxy. And then on the other side, are figures who truly are bearers of this constitutional truth, figures like Ambedkar or Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I would even add among thinkers, Hannah Arendt in that, in that constellation. These are political revolutionaries who distinct from any one party want, want to interpret the constitution politically in light of our present impasses and conundrums. And beyond doubt, as we can easily gauge, it is the second way of reading the Constitution that is truly revolutionary. For one simple, perhaps even irrefutable reason alone, to read and reread a text, as Ambedkar says, is the first freedom. To be banned from reading is servitude in its purest form. To cut through its stasis and subject it to a structure that speaks to our moral impasses today is the only measure of our constitutional freedom. You, you speak uh, just, just powerfully about 
you know, these two ways of reading the Constitution. And we see this play out, as you noted, in the Supreme Court in, in the United States, um, in India now frequently. As, as citizens, what is that kind of relation to the Constitution? And I know you, you've touched on it, that is most fertile. Here is what I see happening around us all the time. I see a veneration, a treating of the Constitution as sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. And in, in the process, a lot of what now happens, which is in the name of the Constitution, using the Constitution, wrongs done in the name of the Constitution, coming to pass because we have inscribed so heavily um, the Constitution almost in countries like ours as a theological document, you know, with that quality of um, being the highest law, right? And as citizens, what is that responsibility that you speak of to examine, you know, interpretations, citizens interpret for themselves, but in the end, citizens are bound by the interpretations made by officers of the court, right? As citizens, how do you come to interpret? How do you stand for these interpretations? How do you um, how do you stand for that rereading relentlessly as we see judgments start to come that seem fundamentally against the very constitutional ideals that they speak in the name of? It, it takes us back to to something we were saying just uh, a few minutes ago. It is is um, is the originalist position, and I'm glad you bring the theological charge, the the the, the theological um, resistance, as it were, to political truth that is at the heart of the originalist maneuver. Uh, and this is true of the United States. This is true of India, where uh, B. R. Ambedkar is often, you know, is almost a Jeffersonian figure. You simply appropriate this figure for different purposes, and you know, as Hannah Arendt would say, God knows Ambedkar is inappropriable, right? And that is perhaps the only redeeming feature of this impasse. So I will say this much. Uh, most directly to your question, the limits of the originalist position are very clear. Their reading is devoid of any sense that the Constitution must be able to address the impasses of the human condition in light of what you will perhaps call, or you just did, the dynamism or the movement of human history. We were saying even in the last episode that the recent Supreme Court decisions is an attack on some of the guiding principles of our very idea that we are equally human, right? And, and in, in that sense, the original position is simply a refutation of that idea. Uh, and we will unpack in, in, in different ways how and why. But more importantly for now, let's say that um, the, the, the originalists also do the drafters and founders themselves grave injustice we you know do injustice to an ambedkar or a jefferson or a, you know in in israel where the attack on the court came to the extent of the dissolution of an entire bench before it was stopped in its tracks we do in that you know in in that spirit we 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 have forgotten that the founders and the drafters of these constitutional documents 
should not, ought not to be burdened post facto, hundreds of years after their death, in, in, in India's case more recently, by burdening them with a moral intelligence that is made to answer to our contemporary problems, as if they knew, as if the American founders who believed that American citizens should be allowed to, to form armed militias against federal power, actually knew that at some point, physical and armed combat can involve something like drones or semi-automatic weapons. As if we cannot make that interpretation in light of our contemporary ability to destroy life itself. And this is where uh, we will come to cruelty in a little bit, because I think that uh, the, the originalist position is also a profoundly cruel position. This is not to say that only conservatives are cruel, but this is to say that the originalist attempt to focus on the writing of the Constitution as opposed to our reading of the Constitution harbors within itself a deep kind of political malice in which cruelty is the very point. And they do it very, very subtly. They do this sort of, uh, or they perpetrate this sort of cruel wrong very, very subtly, simply by ascribing or imputing to founders a certain kind of moral intelligence that must be available with all the answers to the problems of the now and of the tomorrow, right? But we know this much, no moral political thinker, let alone a political founder, has ever claimed for himself or herself that sort of a static transcendental truth, right? That might even be remotely adequate to answering the future impasses and dilemmas of political life. We do not read in... Uh, uh, in figures like MLK or Jefferson or Ambedkar or, or Gandhi, the idea that here is the truth that will forever remain truth. In fact, Gandhi was famously resistant to that kind of idea. Uh, his autobiography is in fact called My Experiments with Truth. It was always a matter of doubt and to use Ambedkar's word, a matter of error. So in that broad sense too, the originalist position um, is a refusal of reading and not simply misreading. I do not think that they read the, the, the Constitution. And so to, to just tie this definitional problem of a constitutional up, we can simply say that we, we ought to let the Constitution respond to the truth as it today stands, to the truth that the preceding generations simply did not know. They could not have known it in an epistemic sense. They could not have known it in a social or political sense, let alone a moral sense. And most importantly, in a planetary sense, right? And it is in this dynamic sense that the constitution can remain, still remain a tangible material idea worth fighting for rather than a slogan that those who compromise democracy use every day for societies and civilizations that they destroy every day. The Constitution is a document 
um, that embodies our relationship to truth. But only when we know that this truth is always mediated by political power, whether we desire it, whether we are those who resist it, truth is mediated, is never untouched by power. One dimension of my question, precisely for, for, the, for the reason that you articulate, uh, in touching on political responsibility of citizens, it is not so much to see them as passive recipients. It is also, in fact, to, and we're going to weave in and out of constitution and cruelty here, so much of the site of our current uh, civilian conflict uh, in, in, in the world's big democracies, and we are really, as, as we look at it, um, just in a constant now state of, as you say, civil wars, so much of that site is in fact not against the outsider, the enemy nation, you know, the external state. These are civilian conflicts between neighbors. These are conflicts between friends. These are conflicts now, you know, with WhatsApp groups and misinformation between family members, right? These are the sites not only of our hostilities, they are now the sites, therefore, of our everyday cruelties. And the reason I come to the Constitution in this uh, context is to say, have we somehow started to use and abuse the Constitution, in a sense, almost outsourced to the state in giving it, in conceding our power as citizens, we outsource to the state the job of that discrimination against the citizen and the neighbor. I can, um, we've spoken, um, you know, and we will come to, to talking of a hatred of the poor. Mm -hmm. I do not need to think today of the poor as my problem. The, the, the institutionalized cruelty right, that the government carries out in my name uh, of neglect of the poor, right, um, sanctioned by constitutions. So somewhere, is this a sort of uneasy truce between citizens and governments in which each treats the constitution to serve its ends, uh, for citizens to look away from their role in creating the state we want. You have said before, um, you know, the constitution will not stand for us unless we are prepared to stand for it, right? And how do you see this sort of nexus, I would say, of citizen and state? Yeah, I mean, there is absolutely no doubt that, uh, and, and I think uh, you have really woven this, uh, you've really woven several steps uh, in, in one formulation. So uh, let us try and unpack this and, and we'll keep returning to, to the larger problematic here. But, but you know, um, there is absolutely no doubt that um, uh, uh, this bond between cruelty and constitution, and I'll come to a slightly, uh, before it gets really grim, uh, a slightly different point uh, in a bit about courage, uh, which is also something that becomes more and not less important precisely in the age of cruelty and indifference. Um, but, 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 but there is no doubt that the, uh, the immense moral and fiscal or political investment we make in this culture of convenience, let us say um, in, in, in using a, 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 um, an academic jargon, this culture of neoliberalism, this culture of 
convenience, this culture uh, in which even information needs to be so conveniently ac- needs to be so conveniently accessible that it does not matter whether it's information or mis- disinformation, right? So you know this culture of convenience is never too far from the culture of danger and of uh, of endangerment of life itself. And it comes with a deeply uh, troubling, Nietzsche might say, immoral compromise. Uh, enough to stain our morality with blood. And we are not overstating the idea that neoliberalism is in the end, as I say, often first and foremost an institutionalization of our hatred for the poor. Not, for, not of poverty, but for the poor. Uh, and, and what we call convenience is not sh- simply a shift of our common good, as it used to be called, right, um, to individual interest or self-interest, right? It is also the creation of a new economy, neoliberal economy, if you will. It is also the creation of a new economy in which our bargain with death, that is to say, as the pandemic made clear, as rivers were found uh, littered with dead bodies, right? It's a new economy in which our bargain with death, our ability to live with death around us with a certain kind of disdain, even indifference, finds its governmental form, right? Convenience is this cruelty-given governmental form. Um, so in many ways, I agree f- with you that the, the degeneration of citizenship, a certain sort of virtuosity linked with democratic life, has something very, very important and fundamental to do with the degeneration of democratic self-government in its very idea, right? Which is why I think uh, we need to understand this singular moment, this condition that I've called the neo-democratic condition, um, of which there there are very few prophetic uh, uh, theorists than Ambedkar, um, is, is that there's a sort of a destructive tension between these three things, cruelty, courage, and the constitution. And perhaps this strange relationship of three very oddly related concepts uh, or words even, at least for me, amplifies or captures the singularity of the neo-democratic malaise, right? The first, uh, I would think we've already um, spoken of is cruelty and, and we need to understand cruelty a little differently from violence. We will have more time to do that. But, but for now, let's, see, let's simply say that cruelty is now entrenched as a political strategy in liberal democracies, like it had been never before for such a protracted, consolidated period of time. In India, we have reached or completed almost a quarter of a century um, 30 years, actually, and just over to that, f- to that first or preliminary uh, act of what I call majoritarian signature, which is a destruction of a 16th century mosque 
from which begins a period of slow, catastrophic violence, which is actually constituted or composed of long periods of non-violence. Right? Cruelty is sometimes simply empathy. Cruelty is sometimes simply patronizing dismissal. Cruelty is sometimes snobbery, which is an act of making someone's inequality hurt, physically hurt. So to call something political, in this case, political cruelty, is simply saying that it has become an electoral strategy. right? And that making electoral of extreme violence, think of that, the making electoral of cruelty, for such a long period of time, even Nazism did not last this long. National socialism uh, or fascism, Italian fascism has not lasted this long. So we are, we are in the heart, and I would in fact say in the midst, not even in the, we are still peaking of, of this neo-democratic condition, whose, um, I would say whose archaic past very archaic past, brutal, blunt temptations to violence, um, is now indistinguishable from its remarkable technological appetite and overt bureaucratic sanction. This is what uh, we must register as a, a, a sort of, a, of a, a fascist competence of taking life, but also creating a culture of convenience. Right? If, you, if you combine these two elements, you see why these governments, uh, the post-Brexit conservative government in Britain comes to mind, but, but others too, invest so much of their energy to public infrastructure, to public goods. In that sense, the American right or the American conservative tradition is a peculiarly anachronistic uh, uh, old school barbaric political form because it opposes even public infrastructure. Other, uh, other movements uh, of, of fascist control have actually uh, appeared now and appear now, continue to appear now as more sophisticated. They invest in infrastructure, they don't oppose it. So what we have now is an archaic past that has been grafted into and taken on a new sort of technological appetite, a new sort of bureaucratic competence. And what makes cruelty therefore political in this sense is not only the fact that it now rides on governmental sanction, but also the perverse fact, truth in fact, that this sanction to violence is not considered a crime anymore unpunishability of public crimes is the heart of the neo-democratic project. Um, it, it would give us hope if some of these frontline leaders uh, and political and elected officials accused of and guilty of organized crimes and programs were once for once held accountable and punished. I think the United States in, in that case fares much better than many other countries because former, a former president can still be indicted by a federal grand jury. That has not happened in any other 
liberal democracy. So, so there are there are of course uh, differences in 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 the current moment across different constitutional traditions. But that is precisely why we ought to read constitutions differently as opposed to keeping them or making them what you were calling sacrosanct, right? Um, in, in, and this is why uh, the notion of courage becomes so important, uh, I, I believe, because things can get really grim unless we point out that there is a third uh, possibility here. Uh, apart from a theological constitutionalism, uh, to take your uh, um, uh, formulation or, or rephrase your idea, um, other than a theological constitutionalism and an unstoppable delirium of political cruelty. And that third, uh, which we were calling responsibility in another uh, or an earlier episode, uh, can be condensed in, in, in the idea of political courage, right? Um, to courage, I believe, is tied the very future of our freedom in democratic societies. Because the loss of freedom will now not necessarily involve the loss of democracy. We, we should stay with courage, but I, I want to come back just briefly to cruelty. And uh, in a sense, I sometimes return us to fairly simple definitional sort of zones for for one reason. When we use the word, in this case, cruelty, how are we distinguishing it from acts of violence? I think for me, what I'm trying to understand, because you alluded to this um, as you spoke, cruelty can take many forms, particularly now in the neo-democratic sort of project. It can take the form of neglect, it can take the form of indifference. It can take the form, as um, as you and I have spoken uh, previously, of a love of political stability, right, uh, of stasis. What distinguishes cruelty from other uh, acts of violence? And what makes cruelty that turning point at which this degeneration becomes, um, you know, almost irredeemable. And I, I, I also take as part of this sort of question, you know, Judith Schlar's um, formulation of putting cruelty first. Why must we put cruelty first if we are to rescue democracy or if we are to return to democracy its originary promise? Yeah, I mean, I, you, you bring a, a, a very, very important figure in the conversation, uh, someone um, who's... who's constitutional liberalism or commitment to a certain kind of uh, radical liberalism, let's call it, um, is, is, is remarkable for that reason. She is one of the few who thinks of cruelty as both an effect of, but a driver of modern politics. Uh, for the longest time, uh, cruelty appeared in political thought as something um, that uh, we perpetrate towards non-human species towards animals. Um, you, you think of the utilitarian tradition, you think of Jeremy Bentham, uh, Shaftesbury, uh, that entire English tradition, you think of Hobbes. In, in so many of these um, uh, thinkers of, uh, of the modern governmental tradition, uh, thinkers of, uh, of sovereignty, um, cruelty is something that is 
reflective of a state of nature. It is, uh, it is a condition uh, or it is a word that describes not politics, but an absence of it. It is a condition that captures or it is an act that captures not the human subject, but its lack. Judith Klar has this remarkable uh, uh, claim in, in this essay you cite, Putting Cruelty First, and she, she, she says that the only other tradition that takes cruelty to be of something of importance is the religious tradition. And so every time uh, you bring cruelty up, you are, uh, you are almost mistaken to be a religious thinker, right? What would it mean to put cruelty first in politics and why do we not do that? So the, the idea here is to first ask why not? And, and Sklar says, look, uh, uh, we think that cruelty is not a category of modern politics, certainly not modern politics. Of course, monarchs and kings have often been um, bloody and cruel. But it does not belong to modern politics simply because everyone has somehow uh, agreed to agree that nobody's interested in cruelty, right? We just are not interested in cruelty because it doesn't serve any function. That shift that is associated sometimes in misreadings of Foucault's work, Discipline and Punish, where, uh, where Foucault argues that the becoming modern of our society is linked to a new economy of power in which violence would henceforth not be wasted. Energy would be saved um, and more judiciously deployed by turning it away from harming from our ability to harm someone's body towards our commitment to reforming someone's soul. Thus the birth, as he calls it, of the modern prison. That is where we reform someone's soul. Why hurt him where we can deploy his body for a new kind of economy? And that uh, has been a ground shifting argument for many, many reasons. But one of the problems of that byproducts, let's say, or effects of that has been a, a, a sustained disregard of the idea on the one hand that cruelty passed away. That it is way too archaic a category to be used to understand our modern compulsions. And on the other, uh, a certain uh, a certain commonplace use of cruelty it's everywhere everyone uses the word right and so th these two paradoxical uh, ways in which cruelty appears as a concept and as practice in in democracy today needs to be f uh, to be deconstructed very very uh, carefully for me what what separates cruelty from violence is its absence or lack of degrees. You are not more or less cruel. You are not, it's just as you can be more or less violent. You cannot be more or less cruel. Cruelty is violence without measure. Unlike violence, which has got uh, a certain kind of ends, a certain kind of purposefulness at its heart. You want to be violent, think of revolutionary violence. Think of fascist violence, right? Uh, think of racial violence. In each of these, there is a certain purposefulness. There, there is a communal aim. Uh, 
uh, think of sacrificial violence towards humans and animals. There's a certain kind of aim or end at their end. Cruelty has no such end. Cruelty is violence for the sake of violence and therefore it decomposes not just the victim but the perpetrator himself. And that is why cruelty, unlike violence, cannot be captured only through words like riots and pogroms. Cruelty is decomposition. Unlike violence, above all, and this should be, uh, this should be, I think, said again and again, cruelty is a sort of extreme violence that cannot be periodized. In Foucault, as we were saying, violence goes through different epochs, strategies, different kinds of human um, temptations can be associated with or relegated to different kinds of historical epochs and periods. We can call a certain kind of violence very medieval. Remember, that is another word we have come to use. It's not chance in the Indian context when certain kinds of violence are called medieval. Right? Cruelty is violence without period. In fact, let us go further and simply say that cruelty is the return of the archaic, the relentless return of the archaic as new. This is why the most archaic temptations, the oldest crimes, the most originary acts of segregation can be crafted on to new technological and technical regimes, to new bureaucratic practices. Right? Segregation could be as old as the American Republic. It could be as old as the landing of the first slave ships on the Atlantic seaboard. Segregation could begin in 1619 or 1776 or through the reconstruction, through Jim Crow, through now, right? But what does not change in, in these kinds of acts, even though their strategies change, right? What does not change is a certain archaic temptation to degrade the human form itself, right? You degrade not just the slave or the ex-slave or the racial minority or the religious minority, you degrade the very idea of the human. And that is where I think the fundamental distinction lies between cruelty and violence. All acts of cruelty may, might have violence in them, but we do not call all acts of violence cruel. We only call some acts cruel. And to, to return to Judith Clark, you are right, she, she gives us a way to put cruelty first by doing two things. One, by dissociating cruelty from violence and attaching cruelty to a whole regime of our most ordinary vices, as she calls them, snobbery, hypocrisy, some of which she argues are important for democratic life. Snobbery is important for democratic life because that's how you build consensus, 
right? This is why I'm calling her a radical liberal. There are certain kinds of insights there that are very, very troubling for a dyed-in-the-wool mainstream liberal, right? Not because a liberal is not a snob, but because a liberal would rather not concede that he is one. Schlar embraces that very, very radically. And the second is her example of cruelty. And among all the thinkers that we can place in this radical revolutionary or, in fact, constitutional tradition, I think Judith Schlar is, is fascinating because other than Ambedkar, she's the one thinker who places what she calls the Indo-European caste society as the sovereign articulation of our temptation to be cruel. Caste is simply a name for an intense barbarism. Conceded and concealed and perhaps sometimes even doled out as empathy. You you spoke of... Um cruelty and and the archaic and i wanted to ask because we've touched or we've spoken of amnesia in the past what role does amnesia play in the enabling of of cruelty and and in a sense can you have a cruelty can you have political cruelty without amnesia without willful amnesia on on the parts of citizenry I'm glad you bring that up because I think we need to um, we need to now return to amnesia through another pathway here, um, which is uh, which is by simply positing what courage is, and in at least one important form, courage is the refusal of amnesia of forgetfulness first and foremost, uh, because there can be no truth telling under conditions of generalized forgetfulness. Right? How will you speak the truth to power, as uh, we love to say these days? How will we speak truth to power in, a, in under conditions of pervasive lying uh, in a post-fact and post-truth world? Right? So one thing that courage requires us to do uh, is to stare back at the regime of lying that is at the heart of cruelty, right? Uh, we uh, were saying, you know, the, repet the repetition we see in, the dis in, in acts of digging up old medieval monuments, Mughal monuments in India, the fight we witness over Confederate statues in the United States, um, the movements uh, we uh, we see britain you know navigate around uh, such things as roads must fall those are actually emblematic of a certain resistance to amnesia a certain uh, way to recount and retell our political history in the darkest shades that it has left and the darkest stains it continues to leave on our political present and future. We are capable of beautiful things, Du Bois says, but we are also capable of barbaric things. And will we not be richer if we were able to stare at our barbarism with the same kind of unflinching courage with which 
we gloat about our civilizational triumphs and greatness. And I, and, and I think it is in that sense that, that uh, to, to invert your formula, as you were saying, cruelty is not possible without amnesia. But a surrender to pervasive lying and forgetfulness is the primary measure of our ability to be cruel, our ability to make someone's inequality physically hurt. And insofar as making someone hurt degenerates into a certain kind of almost anti-human propensity or habit, Ambedkar would say, it's a habit. See, this is the other way in which he stands apart from such figures and thinkers of human certitude and civilizational glory as Nehru. Because he's willing to stare not simply at our barbarism and our capacity to be barbaric, Arendt would say evil. Uh, he is also willing to say that this barbarity is not an aberration of a certain period. It is a recursive, repetitive temptation to cruelty that constitutes us and from which or about which we frequently lie. Caste is a lie. I have, we all have asked dozens if not hundreds of our friends and acquaintances and family members in urban India or even United States where several states are now in the process of or have already banned caste discrimination. So Ambedkar was right. The Hindu does not lose his caste when he crosses the high seas. He carries it, plants it there, where it takes an even more pernicious route. That's the mythic violence of caste, that it travels like a rumor and thrives in denialism. How many have we asked if they were casteists or communal, Ambedkar would say, and for Ambedkar, there is no distinction between being casteist and communal. How many people we know have we asked in across continents if they were casteists, if they believed in caste? And how many have actually said, yes, we are? They say, no, we are not. They say, yeah, I don't eat meat, but that has nothing to do with the history of caste. But actually, it has everything to do with the history of caste, for good or bad. I I am still, on a funnier note, I, I, I am still trying to come to terms with the fact that vegetarians will eat uh, soy products and will call it chorizo. I I'd, uh, just call it soy sliders, call it soy sausage. I, I, it, just, it just puzzles me endlessly. And the answer is that there is something more subconscious, something more repressed as it were in this denial. There is another denial in this denial. And that denial is, we are not casteists. So cruelty of caste, but not of caste alone, is impossible without this denialism, um, without this sort of forgetfulness about the fact that there are some things on which we have simply proven to be incorrigible. We will simply not correct course. We will simply continue to lie. It is what Isabel Wilkinson calls in her book, Cast, 
the fountain, that's not her word, her expression is, the, I would say, a fountain of our unexamined grievance, the refusal to live an examined life. What sort of liberalism would that be that does not examine itself? And that examination is what Judith Clark enters us with or into or takes us into when she calls this regime a regime of ordinary vices. It's insult and death eventually by a million small cuts rather than overt sacrifice. We're, we're going to close, but I think I need to, I need to bring uh, a question back to you, tying these threads together. If courage, and courage is, as you have said, the only not just antidote, the, the only resistance, uh, both to political cruelty, but also to the abuse of the Constitution uh, or to Constitution to feed these cruelties. What would political courage in democracies look like today? What is courage in the face of the democratic, the neo-democratic condition today? Yeah, that would be, I, I think, a good moment to 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 bring this uh, third idea uh, into our triad and, and, and also um, refers back to the previous episode in which we did talk uh, a, a little bit about uh, constitution and its relationship to cruelty. The, the problem with, with courage is that it's, it's also an ambiguous concept. And I want to just give one example of this. On January 6th of 2021, an entire army of white supremacists carrying Confederate flags riots through and just simply storms into the seat of democratic government at the heart of what we call the free world. And we saw more policemen injured in that riot or insurrection, as it's sometimes called, often called, actually. And that is also an abuse of that word than ever before in recent American history. Now, some celebrate that act of storming the U.S. Capitol as an act of courage, because here were the people who stood by their truth. And so one thing we need to remember is that what brings courage back away or pulls it away from this vortex of unraveling, moral unraveling, is the Constitution. But what saves the Constitution is courage in this regime of general cruelty. And this is why we, I, I, I began by saying there is a very destructive, perhaps an irresolvable tension between constitution and courage. But we need both. We need one to pull back the other from the brink because it is to this relationship between courage and the constitution that the future of political freedom might lie. As, as we just said early on, um, and Ambedkar says in the constituent assembly as India is on the verge of becoming a constitutional republic, we might not be able to keep our freedom for long. We might lose our... In fact, he asks it, and this is not his rhetorical question. He poses it as a question when he says, will we keep our freedom or will we lose it again? What is he saying? He's not saying India will become a dictatorship or an outright tyranny. In fact, and quite to the contrary, he's saying that the next time we lose our freedom, we will lose it because of the democracy we have given ourselves. 
and this loss of freedom under conditions of democracy is what I call neo-democracy. This is the real new reality, even truth of democracy. To speak this truth, simply put, is what courage is. A courage that might be anchored only in a community of unflinching truth tellers. And they come from all walks of life. Right? This is the other academic hubris we need to correct ourselves of. That somehow universities are spaces where truth must be told. Of course, universities are places where truth must be told. But it is also true that universities are places where the worst lies are transformed into information. And we can name universities here across countries that have become the seat of this sort of moral and epistemic compromise, even crime. We think here of Rohit Wemula, who was killed by neglect, except that we decided it was suicide. Except that Rohit decided to call it suicide. But actually it was a crime, a murder by neglect. So we need unflinching truth-tellers in all walks of life, incorruptible bureaucrats, fearless judges, indefatigable journalists, indomitable students, irrepressible farmers, a woman, uh, uh, a body of women refusing to surrender to state power in freezing winter, all, all bound by a moral commitment to just one anchoring truth about democracy, that even before fear kills it, Democracy begins to wilt under the brutal sun of our collective indifference. As Ambedkar would say tirelessly, the secret of freedom is courage. And courage is born by a combination of individuals to party. In all senses of the term, freedom cannot be associated to individual self-interest. Freedom is our commons. It is not simply material access. It is a common promise that we make to one another. I am free and as free only as much as you are. In your servitude can never reside the future of our freedom and my freedom. And perhaps these liberal democracies, um, perhaps India, perhaps the United States, India needs to believe again that it is not this one individual or man, that it is a community, that it is not a society of self-interest, that India is a society or must still, still harbor the hopes of becoming a society of equals, that India must not let man swallow the citizen. I think there's there's absolutely no way to better that note other than to say that I'm taking your formulation of disappointment as a political category. And I hope we come to this uh, when we come to the letter D and, and where disappointment is one of our words. And possibly first the collective act of political disappointment we need to feel in order to be able to move to the political courage we need to create a new democracy. We will be back with Mutant and the letter D. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>